This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hello and welcome, friends, to the program. Hello to our friends in the Hudson Valley in the great Empire State, New York, down in Asheville, North Carolina, Birmingham, Alabama, Huntsville, of course, Thunder Bay, down to the Carolinas, all listening in tonight to the program. We've got a good one for you. In just a few moments, we'll be joined on the line by someone who probably knew Jim Morrison, the legendary a poet, uh, probably, I would argue, the most charismatic singer, frontman for a rock band uh, in the history of uh, rock and roll. Uh, Jim Morrison's uh, former brother-in-law, brother-in-law will be here in uh, just a few moments. Uh, it seems everybody uh, is writing a book about the life and death of Jim Morrison, uh, but I think tonight we're going to get the straight goods from someone who knew him better than probably even his bandmates, uh, who've also written books and theorized as to what happened to Jim uh, back in uh, 1971 in Paris. We've all heard the rumors and the legends, but uh, Alan Graham is going to set the record straight here in just a moment. Uh, some interesting stories, though, I wanted to bring to your attention, and I've posted them to my website at richardserrett.com if you'd like to... Um, uh, to read more in depth, but let me just uh, let me tease you a little bit. Star Trek fans, of course, are all familiar with the term warp drive and uh, the idea that you know the uh, the Enterprise could could travel faster uh, than the speed of light exponentially. Right? Uh, warp drive would be the speed of light, and then many times more than that. Uh, Scotty would be saying, you know, I, it, the engines can't take it, Captain. <laughs> anyway, now scientists are saying warp drive. Again, the ability to achieve faster than light travel uh, may not be as unrealistic as once thought. A warp drive would manipulate space-time itself to move a starship taking advantage of a loophole in the laws of physics that prevent anything from moving faster than light. I love that. They're they're going to, it's like they have clubhouse lawyers uh, that are going to take advantage of a loophole. This is not Revenue Canada or the IRS, folks. I don't know how you take advantage of a loophole. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, a concept for a real-life warp drive was suggested in 1994 by a Mexican physicist, Miguel Alcubierre, 
Uh, however, subsequent calculations found that such a device would require prohibitive amounts of energy. Well, I guess so. Well, now physicists say that adjustments can be made to the proposed warp drive that would enable it to run on significantly less energy, potentially bringing the idea back from the realm of science fiction into science. And very quickly, this is an amazing story. Uh, a lost fisherman who drifted at sea for 15 weeks. For part of that time, he slept next to his dead brother-in-law and was eventually helped to safety, he says, by a shark. A Takai a Tatoi was struck on a, or was stuck rather on a 15-foot wooden boat for more than 100 days uh, after uh, he ran out of fuel and the vessel drifted into the Pacific. Uh, the um, a policeman uh, in the case, relie- uh, he was a policeman, he re- relieved his harrowing voyage after a fishing boat eventually picked him up and took him to Majuro in the Marshall Islands. And the father of six uh, told of sleeping with the body of his brother-in-law who died during the ordeal. He later buried him at sea. Um, now, what happened, though, after dehydration took hold, uh, Mr. Titoy, a Catholic, said he turned to prayer as it gave him strength. And then he began to sleep a heck of a lot, you know, as you would uh, imagine, uh, low on food and water and so forth. Then he woke up in the afternoon uh, to the sound of a scratch of scratching and looked overboard to see a six-foot shark circling the boat and repeatedly bumping the hull. And then when the shark had his attention, he said, it just swam off. And he claims... It was getting his attention because when he looked up, there was a fishing boat, the stern of a ship, and he could see crew with binoculars looking at him. And uh, they took him aboard, and of course, uh, it all ended well, except for uh, the, you know, the brother-in-law who passed away. But here he is claiming that the six-foot shark was responsible for rescuing him. Maybe a bit of a, a, bit of a stretch there. Uh, but again, I've posted that and many other stories at richardserrett.com. Have a look. All right, uh, settle in because uh, you're going to, for those of you, uh, and I'm guessing many of you, fans of uh, Jim Morrison, uh, the, uh, the front man for The Doors, one of the great poets. And um, I'm not sure, I, I had the impression, and, and uh, my guest is going to set us straight here in a few moments, how he felt about the music and uh, whether at times he maybe would have preferred just to be, uh, you know, to lead the quiet, romantic life of a poet rather than have one of the, some of these wonderful words set to music and, and uh, have to endure the, uh, the fame and, and all the trappings that go in, uh, along with the, the rock and roll lifestyle. Uh, but uh, I'm a great admirer of Jim Morrison's, and I'm, a delight, I'm delighted to have with us a part of the inner circle of the Morrison family. He was married to Jim Morrison's sister, Anne, and as a member of the Morrison family, he was privy to information that the outside world could only guess about. Alan Graham served as a consulate, a consultant rather, to uh, Oliver Stone's film *The Doors*, and he is the author of *I Remember Jim Morrison*, which is an intimate portrait of Jim Morrison's character and the forces which shaped his life and death. Alan Graham, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Good to have you with us. Thank you, young man, for having me. Uh, now, I know you grew up in Liverpool, just a stone's throw from the famed uh, uh, cavern where the Beatles and the zombies uh, got their start. Uh, but how did you uh, come to meet uh, Jim's sister, Anna? Well, I was living in London in 1966, and I met her through another American girlfriend of hers. And, 
At that time, her father was Captain Morrison. He was about to be Admiral Morrison. She was stationed at the Navy Building in London. This was at the height of the Vietnam War. That's when I first met her. And uh, when did you? When did then you? Did you go on to meet the family and 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 later the the, the young Jim Morrison? Well, a few weeks later, I met her brother Andy, who came on the tube station to Earl's Court to to you know meet me. And I first met him, and then a few weeks after that, I finally met the father and the mother. Went to the house and had dinner. Met them, and they were. Very, very conservative, ultra right-wing military family, as you would expect. Sure, yes. And I was a kid from Liverpool, but still had the Liverpool accent. They kind of talked like that through my teeth when I first met them. You know what I mean? Right, sounded, right. Sounded like one of the Beatles. <laughs> and uh, then he left. They, the family left, went back to the United States because the Admiral was... Uh, stationed at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and uh, she stayed behind with me, much to the dismay, uh, because she was still going to university, University of Florida, Gainesville, and uh, she decided to stay behind and work at the Navy building and postpone a career for a year and have fun in London. And, of course, we got pregnant and <laughs> very soon after that, so... They, so, she was pregnant and married with me. We were living in London. <clears throat> we had no idea that Jim Morrison was Jim Morrison because he about well two years earlier he left UC, graduated from UCLA in 1965, and as, as soon as he graduated, uh, he disappeared. I, um, well, he actually. His, he wrote to his father and told him that he graduated and had got this lovely degree in cinema and fine arts and that he, uh, he was, didn't want to pursue that. He, he was going to be a musician. And, of course, he was disowned, and they sent the, the draft board after him because he was eligible to, you know, that's what his father threatened to do to him if he did do this, that he was uh, now eligible for the draft and that the draft board would be visiting him soon. So he went underground. He lived on a rooftop in Venice, eating out of dumpsters and bumming drinks off friends and subsisting like that. <clears throat> so his father actually followed through with a threat to sick the draft board on his own flesh and blood. So Not only that, they came to visit one day to the house, and he was just livid. Did you ever see a movie called The Falcon and the Snowman? I did, indeed, yes. Yeah, well, it was that same angst, that same father and son angst. The father was so livid that he dared besmirch the Navy, his, his country, his flag, the cause, the whole uh, whole society uh, that he'd reject it and go into this hippie commie world. It was like, you know, so he said to the FBI, yes, you do pursue him, and this is where you might find him. Literally, he was, you know, in that punishing, like, he's got to grow up and take it to man. You know, it's like, right, right. you the father would, you know, they'd be upset, but they wouldn't send him... You know, I guess some would have, but uh, anyway, that's so. So Morrison was kind of on the run. He went to the draft board, told him he was gayer than Florida, so they classified him unfit for duty or whatever, which enraged the admiral even more. And so there was a never-to-be-fixed, you know, awful chasm between the father and the son, and never again see eye to eye over anything. 
And uh, so then Morrison disappeared, and he told everyone his parents were dead whenever, you know, he talked to anyone. Right, and right. And even though he was graduated from UCLA, he was a beach bum, sitting on a beach bum and drinks, writing poetry. And that's when Mansrick walked by in the summer, late summer, and said, where have you been? And Morrison said, I've been right here on the beach writing songs. What are you doing? He said to Mandrake. And Mandrake said, I'm, I got a group. I'm not doing anything. What are you doing? Well, I'm not doing anything. So he said, well, let me come along and take a look at my group, and I'll, let's see what you can do with those songs. And that's where it started. Now, in the, uh, the Oliver Stone movie, that scene on Venice Beach, uh, I, if, if memory serves, the, 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 the first poem that Jim Morrison sort of presented to Ray Mandrake was uh, Moonlight Drive. Well... First of all, can I, I'd like to discount the movie oh, utterly. I worked with Oliver Stone yes. and Val Kilmer, and yes. he made a, he made a hodgepodge. He made a uh, an awful uh, collage of Jim. He made a caricature of Jim, and it's, it, it's almost like you know he all, Oliver was in Vietnam, and all of this happened, so he missed the whole scene. So when he tried to make it in Oliver's mind, he just took what he read about that experience because he wasn't here sure, sure. during that time. So he never knew, and, he, and that's the awful part of that awful tapestry, I call it, because it's got so much in it, but it's so wrong. All of it's based on a book called No One Here Gets Out Alive, which was right. first written by Jerry Hopkins, which was then <clears throat> rejected by every publisher because there's something vitally missing from it, and most people don't know. If you read No One Here Gets Out Alive, the first part of it's credible because it's written by a credible journalist, uh, Jerry Hopkins. But then he g- got in league with Danny Sugarman, the mailroom clerk for the Doors, and he got all of his friends and made up stories, and they got all of these groupies. And they, got, they just made a bunch of shit up. And that's where it went off the rails. Listen, uh, Alan, I'll get you to hold on. We'll come back and we'll get you to set the record straight. We'll find out uh, when you first uh, uh, met Jim and what your impressions of him were. The real Jim Morrison from the mouth of Alan Graham, the author of I Remember Jim Morrison, his former brother-in-law. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Stay with us. would be untrue You know that I would be a liar If I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come on, baby, light my fire Come on, baby, light my fire Try to set the night on fire Loose lips sink ships and sometimes corporations Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Alan Graham is with us, uh, the former brother-in-law of the late Jim Morrison, a uh, legendary frontman of The Doors. And uh, we heard the, uh, the song, of course, Light My Fire, uh, coming back from the break. Alan, w- when did you meet uh, Jim for the first time, and, and what were your impressions of him? Well, I, uh, we came to California in 1968 and landed in San Diego and was staying with a friend of the Morrisons, uh, the godfather of Jim, Andy, uh, Andy Richards, 
uh, Andy Morrison, Jim's younger brother, was named after Andy Richards. So he was a very close family friend. We were staying with him, and the first week we drove up to Los Angeles to see Jim. We just drove up to, looked up the office address in, on Hollywood, Santa Monica Boulevard, and drove up there to see him. And before we got there, I called ahead at the office and, you know, told him we were coming and, you know, where was Jim to be found? They said, well, he was actually doing a concert in Houston, and he was flying in. He was being in Los Angeles Airport at 11 a.m., so we were a couple of hours away, so we just drove to the airport. And we surprised him as he got off the airplane. He hadn't seen his sister for three years. And we were waiting there with all the other, you know, passengers. And he started walking off. And the, first the doors came off, and they walked up with their bags. And Jim was the last. And he came off, and he was wearing a World War II bomber jacket with the big fur, you know. Right, right. In that picture. And this was in August, by the way. <laughs> Oh, he like, looked ridiculous. He was carrying this beautiful antique briefcase with all of his writings in it, and he had cool leather pants on and cowboy boots and lots of, you know, like, concho silver. He looked very cool, very different, by the way, than everyone else coming through there. So we just started walking alongside him. We didn't say anything to him. And he looked down, and I was carrying my son, Dylan, who was one by then, and Anna was walking next to me, and he just looked over, and he stopped and looked at us. And he said, you wouldn't happen to be my sister, would you? Oh, my. So that's the way we met him. And she said, yes, I am. This is your nephew, Dylan. That's my husband, Alan. He's from Liverpool. And we all walked to the luggage rack and got his luggage. We had rented a car, so we had a car waiting outside. And he told the doors, go on ahead, and we'll wait at the luggage rack for his luggage. And... Uh, Art Linkletter was a famous TV sure. personality. Sure, sure. Kids say he the darndest come, things. Right. He came barreling through the crowd, angry for some reason. He saw Jim, dirty-looking hippie, he thought, and just barreled past him and nudged him over. And Morrison looked at him like, talk about rude, but there's a little background story to that and why he did that, and I'll, I'll briefly tell it to you. A year earlier, Art Linkletter's daughter jumped off. Yes, yeah. Okay, so he had all this hatred for hippies, and he actually blamed the Beatles because she took acid, and you know, following that whole trip. So anyone like that, he hated. So Jim looked at him and went, wow, I never did like that asshole. And so uh, that was, got the luggage, got in the car, we drove to Hollywood, and we met Pamela. She was in a... Uh, an apartment in Santa Monica they lived there with a red carpet on the floor. Pamela Corson, Jim's uh, girlfriend. Right. And there's the story on Pamela real quick. The moment we walked in, she, of course, she didn't know we were coming because Jim didn't know we were coming. We'd surprise him and he'd surprise her. And all the doors were going, oh, my God, he really does have family because they thought he, everyone was dead. No one had, you know, like uh, he told them his family was dead. So there we were in the flesh. Look, she looked just like Jim, by the way, Anna. So everyone was always gawking at her. Right. And Pam Pamela did something awfully strange. She ushered Anna into the bedroom. And from under the bed, she pulled out a long box, wooden box, and opened it up with little, you know, curiosities in it. Mm -hmm. A rolled up piece of paper. Turns out to be a, an envelope that was ripped open. And on the, uh, the white side, on the inside, Jim Morrison had written his will. 
last will and testament. Now, Interesting. The very first thing she showed Anna. That's, that's bizarre. Very strange, huh? Well, it was a precursor to a lot of strange behavior after that for what happened, and ultimately, of course, what happened to Jim. So that was the first time we met her, first weird behavior, right? And there was a lot of behavior right. like that until he died. Alan Graham is with us, former brother-in-law of the late Jim Morrison. Now, was Jim, was he, uh, as as you, the visit progressed, I mean, was he was he happy? Was he was he emotional about meeting his sister and, and his new brother-in-law and his, and his nephew? It was, like, way cool, but you could see that he was, like, going, my God. He was marveling at his nephew, and he was marveling at his sister, and he was marveling that she was married already with a baby, and it was like, he was this famous rock star by now, you know, it's like, but he was... Daining, and most people, you know, you saw in that movie where he went around talking like a philosopher. Well, yes. he, he did that when he was drunk with his little clique, but in real life, that wasn't, that wasn't him. He was acting, doing his drama, you know, so. But when he, around us, he couldn't do that, you understand? Sure. <laughs> we sure. would laugh at him, which he would anyway. And, and I've, so he had, to, he had to alter his behavior. That was, a, that was what I'm trying to say. So, you know, this big rock star, that idol, everyone waiting, uh, just bated breath on his every word. You know what I mean? What he said was what was happening. And it's like he was Mr. Cool, but he, he had to be a little more human with us. Right, because, I mean, he had, he had this public persona, and now all of a sudden he's confronted with his past that knew him before, and so he has to be the real Jim, and who is that? In front of those people, which was very interesting, because they all started like, oh my God, it's like looking behind the Oz, you know, the curtain, uh, the Wizard of Oz, looking behind the curtain and saying, my God, he's not a wizard. He's not magic. He's not from this purple glove kingdom of, you know, poetry. He's like an ordinary guy. And your first impressions, did you like him? Yeah, he was very funny. <laughs> That's what kills me about people. It's like, he was a funny all the time, and you never read about that. You would never imagine that Jim Morrison was funny, would you? Because it's always like drugs and death and uh, all this drama. Yeah, morose. Yeah, the imagery always, of death. Uh, sure. And that's why the book couldn't be published because it was morose. You know, no one would took it. Finally, it only got picked up because Francis Ford Coppola, you know, picked. It was that 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 was that music was moved in uh, used in that movie is the end. So all of the same things were happening at the same time. If things were getting famous, and it was like a fluke that that book ever got published because the Admiral was dead against it. It wasn't an authorized biography, which makes it more salacious, which makes it, you know, like tabloid people love it, and so does studios. Right. But it's crap, and it's a lie. And uh, the real Jim Morrison, you will never know for these reasons. Five years' worth of Jim Morrison's life is written about only. You know, Jesus has got more written about him than Morrison in the end, because none of his family ever spoke really in depth. They give you a few tidbits here and there. His roommates at school or his classmates at school knew him only so much. His inner family never spoke, not one time, never. The Admiral finally gave a little interview, and his sister gave a little light interview, but the inner circle of Morrison remained and will remain because they're all dying off, and... Uh, to this day, no one's ever spoken. There's no reason for them to ever speak again. But you'll never know the, uh, except for the, the things that I share with you, that I grew up, you know, the 25 years I was married and was in the Morrison family that I saw, and that they talked about Jim growing up and that their experience, and, and, my, and the essence of them, you'll find even mine is limited. You know, I don't sure. tell all of the inside of their lives, and, the, and that's why they never did want to talk to anyone about it. When Jim got famous, it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> turn the lights on here. They never wanted any publicity, and for the rest of their life, 
that's what they got, you know. And, and it, when it was this and that and that. Oliver Stone picks up the same image. He perpetrates the same image. But the Jim we all knew and laughed our butts off with never was, you know, it, you never saw that. And, you, and so you only know that little bit about Jim Morrison. Even Bob Dylan, you know, someone as cool as Bob Dylan, he, he, when he met Val Kilmer after he played him in that movie because it was such a... To me, it was a hideous movie. Bob Dylan said to Val Kilmer, "Hey, yeah, you you play you played that guy, that guy, you know that guy." So he, Bob Dylan was reviled by Jim Morrison's image. You know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> and you would expect the opposite. You would expect him to look at, but uh, but how did Anna and 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 uh, Jim's brother Andy? I mean, did they did they miss Jim? Did they feel that he got a raw deal from his father, or because again, a very conservative family? But how did they? pursue or perceive what, you know, the fact that Jim sort of ran off and disappeared. When I met Anne, Andy had just been captured from the airport by the butler for the admiral, his driver. I mean, his chauffeur had found him at the airport. He was running away trying to get back to Los Angeles to hook up with Jim. That's how much he missed him. And Anna spoke of him in only revered tones. He was, yes, he was deeply loved, deeply missed because those three grew up like water babies you know what i mean they were navy brats and they all swam and were athletic and had fun and they were suntanned and they were healthy and they were a very close little family unit which is often the case with military families they they move around they don't have friends they rely on each other yeah that's right and jim and uh, she was always aware of Jim, you know, like he was, his instinct was to be like his father, Admiral, you know, he was very responsible. Even when we met him, he was always making everybody got a drink and, you know, he just absolutely couldn't shake that good upbringing that, it, that they gave him, the Morrisons, you know, ethical upbringing. Andy Morrison wanted to be a Green Beret when I met him. So he was, the whole family was pro-war. Even Jim was, believe it or not. It was like when he was a young man, he was just like his father. He wanted to be a hero. Interesting. Interesting. And did Jim ever talk to you or Anna or Andy about about his father? Did he miss his his parents? When when Morrison's father sent the FBI after him, the door closed. Morrison never once ever tried to reach out to them. They followed him when he got famous. In fact, Clara drove to New York to see him play and took Andy when he was just, you know, <laughs> 16 years old and drove him to New York and Jim sat in the front seat, got the manager to put it up front and after the show went backstage and Jim left. <laughs> she would, he wouldn't talk to her. Uh-huh. And then later on, about a year later, the Admiral called up a hotel because Jim was in New York and picked up the phone. It was a Jim. Hello, Jim, this is your dad. How are you doing? Uh, well, I'm doing fine. He said, well, uh, yeah, you're pretty famous now, huh? He said, yeah, I'm pretty famous. I said, well, uh, you're, you're going to come over and have dinner with us? He said, well, I'm pretty busy. And he said, well, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, son. That was it. That was it. Oh, the dear. end of it. And that was Morrison being sullen, being unforgiving, and absolutely intractable in his belief that he was right. And you could hear it in the Admiral's voice. Yeah, well, that's, I got my side, you got yours. It's like... We don't see eye to eye. And there's, there's a great song called In the Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics, a British group. Yes. And it's like, it's that terrible angst between the father and the son because the father <coughs> was succeeded by the son, superseded, because he made 
$10,000 a night. That was back then, and his tax bracket was big business, and the Admiral made $35,000 a year, and that was it back then. So he was famous, but it's like you can never... To the Admiral, that was like, yeah, but that's Hollywood money. That was, you can't make that much in one night. Yeah, I mean, it was just... And how did how did Jim perceive his own fame? Was he was he by 1968 when you met him? They were at their height. I mean, was he tired of it? Was he um, em, em, embarrassed by it? Did he embrace it? It's like I don't try to be blasphemous, but I'm saying like he, when he was like a Jesus figure to the hippies and they laid palms before his feet on Sunset Boulevard. One year, next year, he was a pervert, so he was cast down into this. He was from this magnificent role as this rock idol to this pervert because he pulled his schlong out on the stage, or allegedly. In Miami, and, right. Yeah, and so he, he walked around. A, I wrote a part of my book, it's called A Rat's Maze, and it was this. He lived in a tiny, awful motel called Alta Cienega on Santa Monica and La Cienega Boulevard. Across the street was the door's office. Down the street was a boutique of Pamela's. Around the corner from that, in the same block, there was a little tiny office called Highway Productions where he made his films. Across the street from that was Electra Studios, and the next, to complete the circle in a rat's maze in the four square, was a bar that he hung out in. So he, he lived his life in this, and the reason he lived in this rat's maze and walked around like a rat, drinking and dying and creating, but failing to the boutiques started suddenly collapsing, too much money wasted on that. Pamela's little game, the film studio, it was his own little thing was draining him, everybody wanted money. He was in trouble in Miami, the lawyers wanted him, the doors were fighting with him, so he was walking around in this rat's maze, and one heaviest of all burden that he carried was the fact that Pamela was bisexual, or worse, and a heroin addict, and he was constantly leaving her and going to that motel. And instead of going home at night and doing the rest of the things in the normals, he would go to the motel and they would go to the work. And then he would drink and he would get depressed and he would drink some more and he would go in the studio. A vicious cycle. Uh, Alan, got to take a time out. Let me, uh, you stay where you are, we'll come back and we'll delve further. The real Jim Morrison from uh, Alan Graham. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You know the day destroys a night, night divides a day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, yeah. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Alan Graham, part of the inner circle of the Morrison family, was married to Jim Morrison's sister, Anna, uh, until 1986. Now, uh, Alan, were you a fan of the music? Uh, what, did, what did you think of The Doors and, and uh, the, 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 poet, the, the poetry of, of Jim Morrison? because it was unique music but he was also drawing on you know uh, 
syncopated jazz of the 1920s with Alabama song. That was Bertolt Breck and the Three Penny Opera. But he also loved, you know, well, that's where Mac the Knife came from, the original Mac sure, the Knife. And sure, he, he, uh That whole... Um, his influence of William Blake, of course, his yes. poetry, but, but, but Stravinsky and a lot of other classical artists were in Morrison's lexicon. People don't know that, but uh, he grew up, his father grew up playing the piano in that kid's ear and his grandmother before him. He could sing a long time ago, and so could his, all of his family play instruments. So he came, it, it, it's kind of like it was, it was easy thing for him to do but he but out of all of that he came up with a very unique style and it was very easy because like i was just listening to you know um the end the album today since i knew i was going on the end I, I was, to me it's timeless the music hasn't died and so it's, it was to me it's still cool and i'm almost 70 you know so and, and it lasted that long so and what, what was your, I mean, you mentioned this vicious cycle he was in, this rat's maze, and being, you know, he had these hangers on, and, and uh, I guess, you know, maybe you would consider Pamela to be one of them that was sort of draining yeah. him. What, but what about the other members of the band, uh, Bobby Krieger and Ray Manzarek, and what were your impressions of them? They were wholly separate people from Jim. First of all, they all came from a Maharishi meditation lifestyle. Robbie and Ray were two devotees of the Maharishi Mahi Yogi and did everything. The whole life was, Ray thought he was reincarnation of Buddha, so he had his own world going on. And Morrison had his own ego. He was a, you know, an intellectual, dynamic, good-looking guy, but totally different people. They didn't drink. <laughs> they weren't boozers like him. He was a, Morrison was a young man. He was a heavy boozer from a child, believe it or not. Uh, he grew up with a Navy family. You know, around every single night, Navy folk would be at the house at 5, 5 p.m. until 7 p.m. getting bombed. Cocktail hour. Mm. Every single night. Sunday, I think they took off. Or it was a little Sunday afternoon thing, but it was a whole ritual of alcohol. So Jim grew in, growing up, would have seen lots of half drinks laying around the house when people were half drunk and leaving and falling asleep, and he would drink them. So he was an ACA, Alcoholic Child of America, from when he was maybe 10. Oh, dear. So a lot of people don't know that. And, but was he close with the other band members, or was it strictly a business they arrangement? Absolutely, I would say, Densmore loathed him beyond compare. And uh, the others were, like, disappointed as the as uh, Sid Vicious's band was disappointed with him because he was always passing out and doing something radical. and it's like, it's like a hyperactive person. Oh, no, I don't mean a... I mean a manic-depressive person who goes on these high rolls, does all this wild stuff. Some good comes out of it, but a lot of bad comes out of it, too. And for diligent, hard-working, studious people like Ray Manzrick, Krieger, and the others, they were... It was like, oh, my God, we've got this monster. We're making all this money, but we've got this monster. And it could all blow up at any minute, and it did. And was he difficult to work with? I mean, aside from the drinking, I mean, was he was he the, the, sort of the the temperamental artist? No. He was, uh, in the end, you could see he didn't want to be doing it because a lot of people were milking it. For example, Paul Rothschild was, a, as far as I'm concerned, 
<coughs> the little vampire. He would milk it so there were more hours, and then the, the Electra would be charged more hours, and he would do silly, repetitive stuff, and Morrison was onto it in the end, and uh, you just don't do that many simple takes of simple stuff, you know, so you could see he was trapped in that. The producer wanted more hours, and uh, Electra would charge, you know, them. <laughs> so you could see it was eaten away at him. And then when he got into trouble in Miami, everyone sort of grabbed for their own stuff and said, hey, Morrison, you caused that, man. You've got to pay for that. Even though they all had a written one for all and all for one contract, and, and that was Morrison's idea, he wrote most of the music that most people don't know, but he decided in this, this semi-socialistic, hippie, bohemian way that there were no bosses, we're, we're all hippies, we're all equal, we're all, you know, one. And so he decided that it would be the words of music by the doors. Even though Manswick didn't write, Craig wrote a couple of songs, three or four, I think, throughout the whole career. Densmore was the little drummer boy only. And so mostly all of that stuff came out of Jim's head, and the music came out of Jim's head, and he would sit and instruct Krieger and Mandrick which chords, and they would then build around. He didn't even know which chords until they told him what they were, but he, he heard them in his head. So he was the influence in that music, and he was the heart and soul of that band. And when he died, that band died, if you'll notice. They never again had another record. They never again reached the fame and they, uh, I call it the Morrison curse. You know, they've done it in many, many ways, but they'll never capture that magic and never, and if they, that didn't stop them trying. Even no, for sure. Right Alan, from singing either. Alan, take a, we'll take another time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll find out um, uh, what happened in, uh, in Paris in July right. of 1971. Alan Graham is the author of I Remember Jim Morrison. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about his film project, The Great Jim Morrison Baby Scam. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're Big Brother strange, is listening. And so are you to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Alan Graham stays with us for a few moments uh, yet. Uh, the author of I Remember Jim Morrison. And Alan is uh, the former brother-in-law of the late uh, Jim Morrison. Uh, Alan, so much has been uh, written, so many uh, legends surrounding Jim's untimely death at the age of 27 in Paris. Uh, have you been able to piece together what you think really happened? Yeah, as far as I was concerned, he was either left for dead or t tried to revive him and couldn't and just then covered it up pretending he died in the bathtub. And I'll tell you why I think that. On July 4th in the evening, I got a phone call from the commander, Richard, saying there's some news coming in from Paris that says Jim's dead. And I said, oh, yeah, another one, because we'd heard many of them. And by God, I checked the radio station, and he had died the day before, July 3rd, which would make it Paris, you know, eight hours later. So actually, we didn't find out that he was dead until the third day or two and a half days later. And
Pamela didn't call us, and instead of reporting to the authorities who he was, she tried to cover it up. Some say that was so they, you know, they didn't want a circus around his name. But she didn't, not, not only did she try to cover it up, but she was, then went to the American embassy to report him dead, because that was what you had to do with an American citizen. And they referred her to the, to the Navy because Jim Morrison was, you know, uh, a Navy dependent of the father. The, 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 she told him that he was nobody famous and that he uh, it was just her boyfriend and he died and she buried him and had him uh, no autopsy and buried him, just like that. So they said, well, we've got to check this out and find a family and la, 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 la. Anyway, so she was supposed to come back to the uh, authorities with his passport, birth certificate and all those things, and she left for Los Angeles. She went directly to Max Fink, Jim's lawyer, and told him that, she had been taking heroin, snorting it, and she didn't know that it was so strong because it was from Marseille, which is, you know, almost pure. Sure. And he, that he'd taken some and he'd passed out and she couldn't revive him. And she told him that and all this terrible, screaming, hysterical, help me, you've got to help me, on and on and on. So that's only did I find that out several years later, 10 years later when Max Fink, I interviewed Max Fink. So I didn't know that part of it. But... When she came back to Los Angeles, she didn't contact us. We tried to contact her. She just left and hid out in San Francisco and wouldn't talk to us. That was a strange thing. Never tried to contact us or tell us what happened to Jim or explain. We always thought that was weird until a few months later we heard that she was going around trying to get everyone she knew to say that Jim and her lived together for seven years. And I wonder why we wondered why. Well, that's called common law wife status. If you can prove you've lived together with someone for seven years, you get it all, just right. like a wife. So she managed to do that. She went into probate for two and a half years, and the doors were suing her, and everyone was suing her, and the Morrison stayed completely out of it. We stayed, just let it all happen. She finally gets the ruling, and she is the wife. And the doors go nuts, and the next morning they find her dead. She'd overdosed on heroin the night before, and they found her with her legs up in the kitchen the next morning like a dead cockroach. So she got her just rewards. Do you, and, and do you believe that that's what happened, or do you think that she may have had a, a, more of a direct hand in his death? I think this is what happened. It was another thing I found out and didn't find out until 20 years later when they released the autopsy pictures, or not the autopsy pictures, the death scene photographs. Morrison was in the bathtub with his head on the tile laid over to one side, a little bit of blood coming out of his nose, and the water was cold, been there for hours. But did you ever see anyone who get in the bathtub themselves, like she claimed he was feeling too good, so he went and took a bath in the night? Did you ever see anyone get in a bath and put their head against the faucets where you turn the water on and off? No, absolutely not. It's That's the other way where around. That's was. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So to me, that was a very good clue that she, and plus her behavior, Clara Morrison, Jim's mother, went to a grave believing she had something to do with it, and I will do the same thing, and so will everyone else we know. But I will, let me give you a hockey game analogy. If this was a hockey game, she would have been awarded an, an assist in the very least. Right, right. 
Now, but but did, did Jim? I know he was a a drinker, a heavy drinker. Oh yeah. But did was he into drugs? I mean, I always thought not. Well, he, you know, like everyone else, in his youth, in his youth, he died when he was twenty-seven. When he was eighteen, nineteen, and twenty, and twenty-one, he took everything, and he bought Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City a drink at the same moment. So he took everything, did everything, and he was just that. Jack Kerouac, everybody gotta get a drink and get high with me. So that's the way he was. But soon he tapered off, not liking drugs, not liking smoking hash or doing coke or doing acid or any of that childish stuff. He got into be a real heavy third degree drinker, man. He was stage three all the way. So then why would he have been dabbling with Pam's heroin? I think this is what happened. She was a Oh, I can't tell you. Anyway, broke his heart. That's why he was always roaming around from the rat's maze because he would always find her doing some heroin or do it with somebody or something. And, you know, it's like very sad. That broke his heart, that. And, uh, but, well, I'm sorry, what was, the, what was the question again? Well, uh, why, if he, if he had an aversion later in life to oh, drugs, yeah, yeah. why would... needles. He would never have touched needles. We knew that. But, but it's easy, you know, you go out to the club and you... He would have snorted it, not knowing, or thought it was coke or something, done it, you know, drunk. Because by that time, he was completely wet-brained, drunk, drunk all day. He hardly knew what was happening most of the time. And if, he would wake up sober for a few hours, but a couple of drinks, and he was blind drunk again. So he really didn't know what was happening. Now, there's talk that she wasn't even there. She came home and found him in the middle of, in the, middle of the night in the bed and with the, with the junkie, the count that she was with, and that they put him in a bathtub. And Marianne Faithful was very much involved in it, too. She was called over to the house, and I think she had something to do with putting him in the bathtub. But the, the buffoons all put him in wrong, so they left us that clue. How did Pamela manage to get a French medical examiner to sign off oh, on his death? Oh, God, tell me about that one. Tell me about that one. That no was autopsy, born, no autopsy. Paid for, yeah. It's just like anything back then. You could buy anything. And he was bought and paid for, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, it was just all too quick. It was all too, you know, like, he's dead, he's buried, there's no autopsy. And listen to this. He dies on the weekend, so they've got to keep him in the bathtub on the dry ice all weekend, right, till Monday. By then, she's got a ticket for Los Angeles. And she's buried him and left the same day. My word. That. And why was the casket sealed? Why did no one... Ah, yeah, that's the other thing. There was a talk that there was a Jim Morrison lookalike, name is Werner or someone like that, and that he would always hang around with Jim and they would mistake him because they both had long hair and beard. And sometimes he would be sitting drinking with Jim and would have slept at Jim's apartment and borrowed Jim's shirt or his pants or even a hat one time, and then I heard rumors later that this guy would show up, said, yeah, I'm Jim Morrison, yeah. and they would give him drinks not knowing that it was... <laughs> so <laughs> maybe that's what happened. Maybe Jim finally saw a way to get up and put Werner in the box, and that's who it was, and that's why it was all sealed. And maybe it was like uh, she was supposed to meet Jim later with the money, but she didn't, and maybe something happened to her. Who knows? You, you, I mean, you think that's a distinct possibility? It was Jim's Any, lookalike. You know what? With Jim Morrison, <laughs> I would anything is possible. Including, including the possibility he faked well, his own death? 
as long as there's a human alive and there's corruption and there's like intrigue, it's 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 the story of man, isn't it? But did he? You know, it's we have these legends that he talked about. You know, faking his death and yeah, and um, uh, wanted to drop out and maybe yeah. move to Africa. Do you think that's possible? Yeah. Well, as I say, with him, yeah, I, I would say absolutely. I mean, it's like when people say well, we're the only thing on you know the only live planet in the universe. What absolute, you know, <laughs> with all that out there, there's got to be something, and that's the way I think. If the possibility with Morrison and a movie of the week of that kind of story, yes, I do. Peyton Place with Palm Trees. Uh, Alan, uh, I, I know that um, you're working on a film project entitled The Great Jim Morrison Baby Scam, and we do have periodically these people popping up and claiming that they are the uh, the, the progeny of, uh, of Jim Morrison. And uh, um, Tell me a little bit about that project. We just have a few moments here. Yeah, well, it's not only him. There's several guys who have been always trying to pretend, or girls. There's a woman in Portugal <laughs> who claims she's Jim Morrison reincarnated, and she actually dressed herself up like him and sings on the Internet. Her name is Maria. She's out there. But there's one guy, Cliff Morrison, he just finally got 10 years, uh, but he's been going around for about 20 years pretending that he's the son of Jim Morrison. He's made a bunch of albums. He's taken a bunch of investors. And there's a whole underground of people believing this guy is Jim Morrison's son, but it never got famous because he's always they've always kept it, you know, low. But they've taken a lot of people for a lot of money, and uh, each time they do it, this guy gets on heroin and he collapses and the whole thing, and they go get a new producer and a new scam, and it's like they've been doing it on and on and on and on. And finally, they got this guy for trying to rob a. 7-Eleven with a toy gun, and now he's serving 10 years uh, in going to he's going to uh, California prison anyway for 10 years. And there was a whole gang. His mother was involved. There was a whole gang of them involved. In a, a, a grifter family. So if you ever hear of a, a guy saying he's Jim Morrison's son and playing music that sounds like Jim, that's a scam. Not to discount the possibility, I'm guessing that there may be some of Jim's uh, children out there that he didn't know about, or what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? One thing you should know about Morrison, A, he was impotent. Oh. Could not produce children. That's why we know. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Alan, you have uh, really shed some, um, some light here. Uh, I'm learning things about Jim Morrison. I had no idea, and, and I know my listeners are as well. I'd love to have you back at some point and uh, explore further if you'd be good for that. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you, young man. Thank you very much. Okay, and again, the book is I Remember Jim Morrison. How can people get the book, Alan? I remember JimMorrison.com. Terrific. And I know the proceeds are going to a very good cause. Thank you very much, young man. I appreciate it very much. All right, Alan. Hope to talk again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. You can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash richardserrett.com and the website richardserrett.com to find out what's coming up on the show. This is the end, my only friend, the end of our elaborate plans, the end of everything that stands, the end, no safety or surprise, the end, I
Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, how are you? Good to have you aboard. Uh, I got to tell you, I'm excited about uh, the show. Coming up in uh, just a few moments, we'll be joined by uh, a British enigmatologist, uh, Nick Redfern, who writes about uh, unexplained mysteries and this weird planet. Uh, it is a weird planet, and he's going to share uh, 20, uh, some of the, his latest book is called uh, The Weirdest Places, or The World's Weirdest Places. Uh, I think I have that correct. Uh, anyway, um, he'll tell us all about uh, places like uh, Sydney, Australia, and the creatures that inhabit uh, that, that wonderful city, and some of the ghosts that haunt uh, the Kremlin in, in Moscow, and uh, the ghosts uh, that come out of Halifax after the, uh, the 1917 explosion, and on and on and on. Nick Redfern, uh, in just a few moments. But i got to tell you, I love my, my job. I have a real ritual when I come into the radio station. The first thing I do is I go to the, the mail bunk. And um, you can imagine hosting the conspiracy show. I get some interesting mail, to be sure. I had a, a, a wonderful invite here to um, uh, a UFO symposium from uh, a good friend of the program, Paula Harris, a UFO journalist. She's um, taking part in this symposium down in Sebring, Florida, May 10th to the 12th, 2013. So I'm, I'm hoping I can get down there. And uh, um, I see uh, Stan Romanek and Paul Hellyer, the former deputy prime minister of this country, um, was, uh, is, is now a, um, interested in UFOs. Anyway, uh, also an email from, or a letter from a woman who claims that she's a victim of electronic harassment. Of course, we just had an episode on the, uh, the TV show about that as well. Uh, anyway, having said that, uh, it's time to, uh, to talk about this wonderful, weird planet and the world's weirdest places. He's back with another book and i believe this is number 23 or 24 but who's keeping score it's all good they're all good and he's delivered another remarkable uh, read uh, this one is entitled the world's weirdest places and uh, joining me on the line from his home in the i believe he's still in the great state of texas nick redfern is an author lecturer journalist he writes uh, books about unsolved mysteries his previous books include the pyramids and the pentagon Keep Out, The Real Men in Black, The NASA Conspiracies, Contactees, and Memories of a Monster Hunter. He writes for UFO Magazine, Fate, and 40 and Times, and has appeared on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens, Monster Quest, and UFO Hunters. And always a delight to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, Nick Redfern. Hey, Nick, how are you? Hey, Richard. I'm doing good, thanks. How's things? Wonderful, wonderful. Are you still in Texas, by the way? I'm still in sunny, hot Texas. Well, I say sunny, hot Texas. Today it's uh, grey skies and been raining all weekend. So. Now, how does a Brit who covers the UFO bit, uh, uh, beat and, and unsolved mysteries end up in Texas, which, you know, is a, is a, is a country unto itself, really? <laughs> That's true. Um, well, actually, um, I, I first came over back in 1998 um, during conferences and lectures. But from 2001 till about 2005, I was actually contracted um, by an author to do research for him, and it was pretty much like on a full-time basis. And so it was like the ideal time to, to sort of do this work, you know, and to, and to be over here. And because it was such a long-term thing, you know, I sort of basically did the official move and, um, and settled over here. So. And are you finding enough weirdness in Texas to keep you busy? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. Ghosts, there's the Texas Chupacabra, there's Bigfoot reports on the east side of Texas, which is sort of heavily 
forested and wooded, um, lake monster stories. You know, it's actually not that, <laughs> that not that different from where I came from originally in England, Rita. Temperature aside, of course. <laughs> right, right. So the wor- world's weirdest places, and here you've compiled uh, what you consider the top twenty-five uh, uh, strange places, and the, uh, the the ghosts, vampires, aliens, lake monsters, and strange energies that inhabit these places. Uh, let's start in the United States. Uh, I, I've been back and forth to California a number of times over the last couple of years, and uh, spent some time at least driving through the Mojave Desert, otherwise known as Death Valley. What's going on there, uh, aside from the fact that this is an incredibly desolate, hot uh, a place, and, and dangerous if you're, if you're not properly fueled up? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Death Valley isn't called Death Valley, you know, for no reason. It, it is one of these places, you're quite right, you know, if you go out there and you're not prepared, you know, in terms of water, food, um, cover, you know, just to protect yourself from the heat and the sun, you can get in big trouble, you know, if you're out there for a long time. And, um, Death Valley is one of these places which I talk about in the book, which basically is like the book's a study of 25 places all around the world, which are kind of like definitive hotspots for for just strange phenomena. And certainly Death Valley um, is, for me at least, you know, very near the top of the list. There are actually several weird things that are going on or have gone on over the years within Death Valley. Um, one of the strangest is it's probably its most well-known mystery, which is the mystery of the sailing stones. And um, this is a story that goes back as long as people have been in the area, which you know is literally centuries. Um, and all across certain parts of Death Valley, uh, people have stumbled upon these large stones and rocks that have a trail behind them. In some cases, going on for miles, where it's quite clear that the stones have moved. You know, they've just sort of traveled along. It's almost like, you know, the, the track of a, of a snail or something like that, you know, or a, a car tire in the mud. Um, and, of course, people said, well, how on earth, you know, are these, um, are these stones moving? And there are a lot of interesting theories with regard to, you know, what may be going on. There's, you know, the down-to-earth theory is that because the, the desert is very dry, but they have these sudden out-of-the-blue rainstorms that you get like a thin veneer of water on top of the hard desert and then when the wind blows through it blows the stones along and they then start propelling under their own motion if you like on the water the problem is some of these stones that have got these trails behind them um, are like 150 160 pound and despite all the experiments that have been done to try and prove this theory nobody successfully managed to get one of these 140 or 50 pound stones moving under its own power just with the wind and a bit of water, you know, beneath it. So, you know, that in itself is, is, um, is kind of intriguing. Um, some people have suggested maybe there could be sort of underground energies going on. And that is made all the more intriguing as well because there are a lot of stories about, um, particularly in the 20s and 30s, real-life Indiana Jones-type characters who supposedly stumbled upon underground chambers in this very same area of Death Valley. Howard where Hill. They, what's that? Howard Hill. Exactly, Howard Hill, yes, um, where they reportedly found um, sort of ancient chambers and hollowed-out areas that seemed to contain things like um, like American, ancient American equivalents of things like, you know, Roman statues and Greek statues and pillars, as if there was some sort of very ancient American cultural civilization thousands of years ago that 
and certain evidence of it, you know, still existed in these deep caverns. And, um, you know, there may not be a connection, but on the other hand, the fact that these stones sail across the deserts in the very same area as where these stories of these underground um, ancient civilizations are coming from, you know, it's, uh, it sort of adds to the mystique and the, the mystery of the area. Now, Howard Hill worked with the, uh, the L.A. Transportation... Um, uh... Yeah. No, no, he spoke before the L.A. Transportation That's Club. Correct, yeah. and, and what did he tell them? Uh, he, he, he met these figures down there. Uh, what, what did he tell them about, about these, these people he met? Yeah, sure. Well, basically, I mean, there are a number of stories told in this sort of period, the 30s and 40s, but without doubt, you know, the most, I would say, certainly the most significant one came from this guy named Howard Hill. Um, as you said, he, he was from Los Angeles. He spoke in 1947 to the city's transportation club and he told basically a story of a Dr. Uh, F. Bruce Russell who was a physician but also like, um, like a, like a part-time amateur um, archaeologist who had heard a lot of stories about complex tunnels deep below Death Valley and so Russell decided with a colleague and friend to go out there and check it all out for themselves and reportedly they found actually stumbled across across um you know some of these big extensive tunnels below the valley and they reportedly they found the remains of uh, so-called giant men several gigantic men about nine feet high um and it is probably quite apt to say they actually stumbled across this particular underground cavern if you like because one of them who was sort of digging a sinkhole in the air at the time actually sort of the ground gave way beneath him and luckily he didn't fall too far but it was like a 15 feet fall you know it sort of severely winded him and um, luckily he didn't break any limbs but um, when they got down there they reportedly as I said found you know what sang almost like an Egyptian horde you know you can't imagine something along those lines um, and Howard Hill was a friend of theirs and they confided in him and then he decided to sort of blow the whistle on aspects of the story but what the big irony is that nobody, for the most part, in the media or the scientific community believed Hill, and he offered to take them to the place and invite, uh, in, uh, introduce them to the people. Um, but they all said, no, you know, this is nonsense. We're not going to look into it. And Hill was like, well, you know, it's your loss. And what was interesting is that um, Russell said he was going to go back and, you know, check this area out, and supposedly he did. But he never again spoke about this, you know, so we don't really know exactly what he found. But the mere fact that he, he didn't speak about it, you know, in itself is kind of intriguing. Didn't he describe the, the dress of these individuals he met down there as sort of uh, resembling Freemason regalia? Yeah, th this is sort of a very strange story, uh, part of the story, I should say. Um, they were talking about these, these beings, these sort of nine-foot-tall beings, dressed in... When I say jackets and pants, they weren't actually talking about, you know, like regular things you'd wear in the city to work or something. But they were talking about what looked like a, like a two-piece outfit, you know, um, but not of sort of cloth-type material, but more of almost, I won't say like a flight suit, but, you know, if you imagine like a, just a regular type of leather jacket or something like that, um, and, and sort of well-fitting pants, that kind of thing. Um, but they appeared to be made out of the hides of animals, but done in a very sort of skillful way. You're not sort of cavemen strung together or anything like that. It was sort of more of a, of a skillful way. Um, 
But he said that, um, Howard Hill said that when um, Russell went in there and this colleague of his, Bovey, um, they came across this gigantic hall, uh, which was sort of buried with inside these cabins. And what was interesting, there were various devices and carvings on the walls, which actually eerily paralleled almost to the point of being identical to certain Masonic symbols. Um, which, you know, sort of provoked and opened the idea that there was a, a Masonic link, possibly with some sort of ancient civilization in, in the Americas. And reportedly they uh, also found the bones and the remains of things like um, saber-toothed tigers and mammoths, which did, you know, thousands of years ago roam the United States. And um, so in that sense, you know, it all fitted in time-wise with an ancient civilization. And, uh, and it does sort of really provoke kind of Indiana Jones type imagery, if you like. Absolutely. Nick Redfern is with us, the author of The World's Weirdest Places. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, a little closer to home here in the great city of Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, and a sea serpent that is said to uh, inhabit Mahone Bay, and then farther afield to the Kremlin, and uh, uh, some wonderful ghost stories around Red Square. Back with more of my conversation with Nick Redfern here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. And we're back with uh, Nick Redfern uh, talking about the world's weirdest places. Uh, Nick, one of my favorite cities in Halifax, out in the Maritimes. uh, Sorry, one of my favorite cities in Canada is Halifax, out in the Maritimes, the capital of Nova Scotia. Have you been? Yeah, I actually have. I have a good friend who lives there named Paul Kimball. Um, Paul's sort of a fellow researcher, you know, into Unsolved Mysteries, and um, we hang out now and again, and... um, I went up there in 2006, and, um, and Paul basically showed me all around the area. We had, I was up there for like a weekend, four or five days, and um, he showed me all around the area and the, you know, talked about the history and the culture, and I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it kind of re- reminded me of England, Halifax. It's sort of you know, one of these old towns with a pub on every corner, and uh, you know, it's sort of like a, a cool little place to hang out. So I had a great time there. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not as old as uh, a lot of cities in Europe, but it certainly has uh, that character, as you say. Uh, yeah, but, uh-huh. but going back to, let's say, the mid-18th uh, century, there have been uh, uh, stories of this uh, serpentine-like creature that um, is said to inhabit Mahone Bay and St. Margaret's Bay. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, you can find anywhere, well, I won't say anywhere, but most places in the world, you know, they have legends of things like sea serpents. Um, And certainly Halifax is no different. When I was looking into the history of sort of the weird stuff, you know, going on there, that was one of the things that was really sort of prevalent, sort of around about 150, 160 years ago. Um, Certainly less so today, you know, that doesn't mean people aren't seeing them, but we're not certainly getting as many reports as we were you know, back then. But, I mean, in terms of, you know, the, what people were reporting, they were like the classic types of encounters, you know, that go, exist throughout history and folklore, sort of like large serpent, snake-like creatures, 
you know, that would sort of surf along the um, the waters. Actually, extremely close. You know, when we talk about the bay, I mean, we're talking about, you know, within full view of people on the land, so to speak. I mean, one of the most famous ones from 1833, this actually involved a, a British naval ship. Um, and they saw this creature, which was actually near Mahone Bay and St. Margaret's Bay. And all the crew on board, you know, it wasn't just sort of one or two, the entire crew sort of watched in amazement at this creature, which is about 150 yards or so from them. And it had this huge head and neck sticking out the water and these large sort of bulbous glassy eyes. And, of course, you know, nobody knew what it was at all. And then the, the next uh, sort of most famous one, which came approximately 20 years later, reported by a guy named Peter McNabb, um, he saw a very similar creature near McNabb's Island, uh, which was described as being about 20 feet long. Um, so this was obviously smaller than the other one. But, I mean, you know, the mere fact that we've got several reports in that precise same area suggests there was some sort of, you know, uh, population or, or something going on there, if you like. And, and the, more, the, more, the most recent sightings uh, of this creature would be when? Um, well, the, the most recent ones I've got are actually from the 1960s, so we're talking quite a long time ago. But in saying that, you know, I mean, there's, there's no real reason why we would necessarily expect these creatures to remain in one place, you know, all the time. I mean, their, their entire, anything that's in the sea, you know, it's, it's derived its existence from, from basically just seeking out food wherever it can get it and surviving. So, you know, large creatures like this, they're going to require a lot of food, you know, to sort of fuel their massive... nomadic creatures, you know, that would be constantly on the move, you, kind of like sharks do at times, you know. So. And the descriptions uh, of this creature uh, similar to, uh, let's say, uh, Loch Ness or, or Champion, Lake Champlain, um, New York? Actually, in some ways they are, because they have this sort of classic, typical long neck. But where they differ is that many of the lake monsters are described as having like a very thick, muscular, humped back. Whereas the sea serpents are more like a classic large snake in the sense, you know, there's no bulbous spinal area and, and large body, torso. They're just, you know, just long like a snake or an eel. And of course, this has actually given rise to one particular theory that, you know, could they be just gigantic eels? Now, you know, I mean, it may not see, sound as exciting as, and as romantic as, you know, like a uh, surviving dinosaur, but... In the um, English North Sea, divers have reported seeing conger eels of about 12 to 15 feet long, you know, which is pretty large. Um, so if in other parts of the world, you know, there are eels that reach 30 to 40 feet with bodies the size of oil drums, I don't think most people would probably quibble that that would be like a sea monster, you know, if you're faced with it up close and personal. Um, so, you know, I, I guess... There are a lot of differences between, you know, the reported sightings and, and lake monsters in terms of the description, but they do have that one thing in common, which is sort of the classic long neck and the small head that kind of, you know, sits on top of this huge neck. That, that's the one characteristic. The heads are often quite small. The other uh, uh, unfortunate incident uh, that 
um, is the reason that many people know about Halifax is, of course, mm-hmm. the the uh, the cataclysmic uh, collision of two ships. One was a, a whaling supply ship, and another yeah. was a French freighter, and it, it caused a huge uh, explosion. And and um, I think something like two thousand people were killed, and and probably twice that many were injured, uh, and and destroyed many buildings in Halifax. Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, that was. You know, for for such a, a a small place or relatively small place, you know, Halifax has had a lot of weird stuff and tragedies that all sort of combine together. But uh, yeah, you're right. This was in December 1917, and um, Halifax in its harbour, um, there were two on this one particular day, December the sixth. There were two um, ships, a French freighter called the Mont Blanc, and the Imo, which was a whaling ship. And they collided. And in a worst-case scenario, the Mont Blanc actually had on board um, a large amount of TNT, of explosives. And, of course, you know, when the two ships uh, collided, there was just this gigantic explosion. And um, you're right, it was roughly around about 2,000 people were killed. Actually, more than 1,500 buildings were just sort of flattened. You know, it was almost like the equivalent of an atomic bomb going off. You know, it was just a gigantic explosion. Um, and, of course, you know, with all these thousands of people killed, um, you know, many of the bodies were just obliterated, you know, they just were vaporized, literally. Um, but obviously, of course, you know, a significant number of bodies survived, and um, some were taken um, to various mortuaries around town. One of them, um, which was a, sort of an early and significant mortuary in the, in the town of Halifax, um, is actually a restaurant today called the Five Fishermen, and the Five Fishermen has a long history of both staff and customers seeing people or sort of spectral type people kind of gliding through the the old hotel, uh, the old building, um, dressed in sort of like early 20th century, late 19th century clothing, and it's sort of given rise to the theory that at least some of the people whose bodies were taken to the Five Fishermen prior to it being a restaurant when it was a mortuary, you know, there could be a tie in there. Um, you know, we saw like another paranormal thing going on in Halifax. And and uh, there is uh, another rather spooky fixture of Halifax, you point out, um, uh, that was one of the victims of this horrific blast, and yeah. she's known as the Grey Nun who haunts the Victoria General Hospital. Tell me about her. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, when you talk about sort of a Grey Nun haunting a hospital, it kind of puts like an ominous tone on it. You know, you imagine this sort of... Um, sort of gliding cloaked figure, you know, roaming the corridors. But it's actually far more benevolent. She's described as actually being sort of very helpful, friendly type ghost. And supposedly that she sort of appears around those people who are sort of, you know, in a terminal state for who unfortunately there's no, you know, there's no way back. And But a number of people in that situation have talked about seeing this sort of spectral nun hovering around and reportedly it's given them like a sense of peace you know and tranquility and the idea that everything's going to be okay so you know it's not like you would imagine sort of a a ghostly nun you know like some shrieking specter it's more of like a a helpful character if you like that sort of transitions people through one state to another yes because apparently she does have the ability to show up when uh, death is near is is uh, she visits yeah, that, people when yeah. they're in their when they're in their final stages i guess yeah so that terminal point you know where there is no well there is no point of return you know and um, but doctors and nurses have been told these stories you know well who was that woman that came to see me you know and they said well no woman's come to see you and you know they've said 
oh yes, you know, they had it was a, this sort of nun-like character in the corner of the room who told me everything was going to be okay and not to worry, etc. And and then of course, you know, all the staff know these stories. So over time, you know, a lot of believers have been made out of the hospital staff who were perhaps a little bit sceptical beforehand. Nick Redfern is with us, the author of The World's Weirdest Places. Is there a common denominator, do you think, to all of these these uh, locations? We'll, we'll talk about more as the hour progresses, and yeah. we'll get into uh, Moscow and, and, and the Red Square and the ghosts there. But is is there an underlying common denominator that makes these places, well, so weird? Yeah. Well, I actually think there is, Richard. I mean, from my perspective, you know, the, the thrust of the book is not just to study of 25 weird places but it also addresses why they're weird you know which is an important question why is it certain areas of the planet seem to be just total hot spots for everything from ufo encounters bigfoot lake monsters sea serpents ghosts paranormal activity occult activity etc and one of the things that i focus on is what john keel used to call window areas the idea that there could be sort of portals and doorways on our world on our planet um, but sort of opened almost like a rift to other realities, other dimensions, and that possibly at least some of these entities and strange phenomena kind of come through these doorways briefly into our world and then they're gone again and, you know, they're not come back at a later time. I guess the, the most famous examples would be like um, Point Pleasant in West Virginia where you had all the Mothman and strange encounters of UFOs and ghostly activity in the mid-60s that John Keel chronicled in The Mothman Prophecies, or somewhere like the Bermuda Triangle, you know, where people talked about that being kind of a, a hot spot. So what I've tried to do is not just chronicle the places, but to come up with explanations that might offer some understanding as to why they exist, you know, with these sort of rifts and doorways opening to other realms or whatever. Any connection to ley lines, these ancient... Uh, mm. lines supposedly that uh, that I guess connect ancient ancient sites and have some sort of uh, energy contained within them. Well, yeah, I mean that's an interesting thing because ley lines are sort of these reported energy areas or lines that you know that spread all across the entire planet and supposedly ancient man knew something about how this particular energy could be harnessed if you understood the you know, the power of the, the planet itself. They were sort of described as like Earth energies, but, you know, you could derive um, power from. And there's absolutely no doubt that, you know, certain significant places where a lot of mysteries happen are on ley lines. I mean, for example, um, Stonehenge and the famous Avebury Stones, both of which are in the county of Wiltshire in England. You know, Wiltshire is just crisscrossed with a mass, absolute mass of ley lines and of course Wiltshire is also where most of the crop circles appear every year so you know I think ancient man knew something about these portals these energy lines and that somehow I think there's a combination or a cross you know a crossover between the two so um, you know we're sort of we're getting the answers I think but it's sort of a case that ironically although we're more technologically advanced than ancient man I think they were more sort of spiritually advanced in understanding things like earth energies and these other realms that many people today just write them off as nonsense you know all right let's take a quick time out when we come back over to the kremlin in moscow where the ghosts of ivan the terrible vladimir lenin and joseph stalin no less are all said to roam the old corridors and rooms 
of the Kremlin. Back with more of my conversation with Nick Redfern here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Back with Nick Redfern. Uh, Nick, we head now over to uh, the Red Square and St. Basil's uh, Cathedral, uh, inside of which, of course, uh, of course stands uh, a somewhat ominous-looking uh, building. Of course, we all have memories of the Cold War and those May Day parades and all of the weaponry and, 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 and the show of force. But uh, no question uh, that the Kremlin is a, is a majestic and certainly an historic structure. Uh, very old and uh, a lot of ghost stories, I'm sure, there. Yeah, the, the the Kremlin actually dates back to the 12th century the, when the you know the original foundations of the you know the original version of it, and it's basically kind of like you know the Russian equivalent of the White House. It's sort of the official residence of the Soviet, or the, excuse me, the Russian Premier um, today, obviously uh, Vladimir Putin. And so you know it, it basically carries out the same task and etc. as the White House does. Um, but um, the, the Kremlin's an interesting place because, again, you know, it's somewhere that's a hotbed for just outright weirdness of, you know, a whole wide range. And as you pointed out, I mean, one of the things that really sort of typifies the Kremlin when it comes to the paranormal stakes, if you like, is the sort of immense amount of ghostly activity that goes on there. And um, the... One of one of the sort of the most um, the famous stories um, is uh, relates to Vladimir Lenin. Um, you know, he's one of the most um, sort of well known, I guess, of the the, the uh, previous Soviet premiers. And um, the biggest irony is about the the sightings of Lenin's ghost is that the first one actually was made or occurred when he was still alive, which kind of sounds strange, but this occurred in the early 1920s. Um, at the time, Lenin was actually extremely seriously ill, and he, he actually didn't live for very much longer anyway. But um, at the time, he was at his own private um, house um, in, in, in Gorky. Um, and of course, he's been watched over by doctors and soldiers, etc., etc. There was a point in that period when he wasn't expected to live at all. Um, but what was weird is that, you know, although he had this house in Gorky where he was pretty much on his deathbed at the time, um, personnel out at the Kremlin, you know, where he obviously usually worked from, they reported seeing him sort of striding down the corridors of the Kremlin, looking very vibrant and healthy, when they knew that he should have been on his deathbed in Gorky. So, you know, uh, a call was quickly placed um, to, you know, his doctor who said, well, I'm looking at him, he's in the bed here, you know, he, there's no way he could walk six feet, never mind stroll down the corridors of the Kremlin. Um, and one of the theories that was put forward was that possibly, you know, his subconscious realizing that he was soon to die, he wanted to have one last tour of the Kremlin and, you know, his sort of his soul or his essence or however you want to term it, sort of let, you know, had like an out of body experience and, uh, you know, sort of manifested within the Kremlin itself. Now, um, the, I guess the second most famous story or series of stories relate to Joseph Stalin, who, um, 
rule from uh, the early 1940s to the early to mid 1950s um, in the Soviet Union. And there are a lot of stories uh, of people seeing um, Stalin's ghost all around the Kremlin, but they're all sort of typified by one thing that as soon as he sort of manifests or appears, the temperature drops massively and noticeably. Um, well, he was pretty some... ruthless and cold. Maybe that was <laughs> that has something to do with it. <laughs> well, that, yeah, might, that might be reflected in death, you know, how he was in life. But, yeah, I mean, people talk about this a lot in ghostly encounters or haunted homes, um, you know, where you have these... Ironically, you know, you could call them hot spots, but they should be like icy cold spots, I guess. Um, you know, where the temperature just really drops in an area that's maybe sort of six to ten feet long or wide, and then as you pass through it, you know, it's normal again. And a lot of these sort of situations occur where Stalin's ghosts have been seen. And there's also things like um, poltergeist activity with doors slamming and tables moving and, and things like that. And, um, you know, those reports are kind of more unsettling, whereas, um, you know, Lenin just kind of appears or materializes and then has gone. There's the cases involving Stalin are sort of far more perceived as like threatening or or traumatic for you know for the witness so to speak certainly uh i want to get into this now we're going to take a break in a couple minutes here but uh uh you know we're all familiar with area 51 you've you've written about it talked about it extensively but it appears that uh moscow may have its own area 51 of sorts at least that part of that aspect of area 51 which involves the housing of of uh, ufo uh, crash debris and perhaps alien bodies but this area 51 uh may in fact be deep under in an underground chamber right below the kremlin tell me about that yeah well a lot of people don't realize you know that most well i won't say most i say all you know advanced nations particularly at the height of the cold war when they realized how much destruction would be wrought if there was like an atomic war, you know, a third world war. But all nations started building massive underground chambers. And there's actually like a, a very large fortified bunker underneath the White House. You know, a lot of people don't realize that, um, you know, in the event of a catastrophic strike on, on the nation's capital. And it's the same with the Kremlin in Russia. Um, but, you know, in the 19, early 1950s through the 60s, extensive digging was done underneath Moscow in the event, you know, that the, the city was taken out in a nuclear attack and the plan was, you know, to have these huge chambers like 200 feet underground, you know, huge metal doors, fortified concrete, you know, with circulating air, food and water, etc., you know, to survive for months. Um, and certainly there's a, there's a huge bunker, gigantic bunker. Um, beneath the Kremlin. Okay, let me just um, jump in here, Nick, because we'll okay. take a time out when we come back. We'll, uh, okay. we'll delve further into uh, the Kremlin's Area 51. Nick Redfern, the world's weirdest places here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Uh, we're back. A few minutes remain uh, with Nick Redfern, the author of The World's Most Mysterious Places, or The World's Weirdest Places, my apologies, The World's Weirdest Places, and we're talking about this uh, underground chamber that lies beneath the Kremlin in uh, in Moscow, uh, and rumors uh, that it may house, in fact, uh, alien uh, aliens, uh, perhaps uh, UFO crash debris. Is there a connection to Roswell? 
Well, you know, I mean, it's one of these situations where the, although, you know, when you think of crashed UFOs, everybody thinks of Roswell. Um, but, you know, reports like this have surfaced over the years from all corners of the globe. And certainly in terms of the Russians, you know, they've had a number um, of um, reports of crashed UFOs um, pretty much all across, you know, from one side of the other two of the former Soviet Union. Um, one of the most interesting ones actually occurred in 1947, or this object was found in 47, um, which, of course, you know, was the year in which the flying saucer wave began and, you know, the term flying saucer was coined. But the story relates to um, when, after the sort of destruction of the Second World War, the Russians started to try and, you know, rebuild some of their destroyed or partially destroyed cities, one of them being Kiev. Um, where supposedly workers who were sort of you know clearing away all the rubble and the ruined buildings found this um, so almost like a like a cigar shaped object about 20 feet long deep underground um, which was described as being sort of a silvery color um, just totally smooth you know no evidence of welding or anything like that at all um, and of course they realized that whatever it was it you know it wasn't just some sort of normal object the first concern of course was you know was it some sort of missile or a bomb so a military team was brought in to examine it they realized that you know this wasn't anything like a, a german bomb or even you know an allied bomb anything like that at all so it was reportedly taken to somewhere um northeast of moscow where a lot of um sort of early um, Russian research was done into things, you know, like rocketry and um, aviation, etc. Um, they kind of examined it and um, came to believe something pretty startling that there were marks on it and the the evidence of sort of decay, etc., suggested that this thing had been buried not since '47 when it was discovered, but possibly for literally thousands of years. And supposedly the story is that you know it was taken to various places um kind of like russian equivalents of area 51 where it could be studied and then eventually because of its perceived value was stored um in one of these vast bunkers below the kremlin and occasionally you know as new scientific discoveries and are made and if or if there's a new scientist who can possibly add you know something to the investigation they kind of bring them into the program and show them what's there and then basically say um you know um you, is there anything you can add to the investigation you know and uh, and uh, and do it that way so now one of the uh, the strangest creatures uh to exist anywhere is said to inhabit a beautiful city on the other side of the world and that is in sydney australia uh, what can you tell us about this creature that some have described as an elephant walking on its hind legs? Yeah, this is uh, this is sort of a very uh, weird story. I mean, you know, you, you get weird stories anywhere, but this one is sort of like a, a definitively strange story. Um, again, like a lot of these places, you know, Sydney has UFO reports, Bigfoot reports, Lake Monster reports, but um, this one, the, the creature that's described in this particular story, um, it really kind of doesn't sound like anything I've ever come across before. It's like a typical one-off. But um, it occurred um, in a, a suburb of Sydney, which is called Narrabeen. And it was in 1968 when a woman um, was driving home and saw, you, you, if you imagine sort of driving down this road, which is sort of surrounded on all sides by like a lagoon, um, 
And as she was driving along, she saw, saw this strange creature come out of the water. And it was described as being around four feet tall. And it sort of had this weird, almost comical shuffling motion. Um, had this leathery gray skin, not unlike actually, you know, the sort of rough skin that you see on an elephant, which was interesting because it had, um, it had this sort of like a slim trunk, very similar to like an anteater crossed with an elephant, but it had these long back legs and these two short legs at the front. You know, you kind of imagine if you had a pet dog and, you know, you're standing on his hind legs and the front limbs kind of just hang, you know, short. Uh, it's kind of, sort of like that, but it seemed to just walk normally, you know, as if walking on two legs was its normal movement, which, of course, you know, for an anteater or an elephant, it certainly isn't. And there shouldn't be either, uh, excuse me, there shouldn't be elephants, you know, wandering around Australia at all. Um, and certainly not four feet tall. But the woman stood by her story and said, you know, there's, look, there's, this is what I saw. You know, I was really close to her. I slowed the car down, even had the window open. This thing just sort of, when it saw it, just bounded away. But, you know, she was adamant. It was like a four feet tall bipedal creature with a, like a long, slim trunk, you know. And uh, how we explain that is, well, the best I can say is we don't explain it, except for the fact that the witness stood by the story, you know, permanently. And it's interesting, as you point out, in uh, the world's weirdest places, that around the same time that this monster of Narrabeen was seen, there were also uh, UFO sightings uh, at that same time and in the same location, in Narrabeen. So is there some connection, do you think, between yeah. this creature and UFOs? Well, that's the interesting thing, is that, you know, often where we get strange creature reports, we get other anomalous phenomena as well. Um, now, of course, people who are sort of strict, straightforward UFO researchers don't like to sort of, you know, have their territory invaded on by Bigfoot and lake monsters and cryptozoologists, people who look for weird creatures. They say, well, there's no connection with UFOs and Bigfoot. Bigfoot's just a, a missing ape or a giant ape that science hasn't classified. So what we have happened is that very often these cases aren't... Um, deeply investigated because neither side wants their belief systems challenged as to what's going on which becomes a big problem uh, but for me you know when we repeatedly see stories and cases where for example you know bigfoot has been seen at the same place as a ufo and this occurs all around the world then i think we've got to look at the bigger picture that something else is going on and sydney is a classic example that you know where this small creature this long trunk was seen we've had reports of ufos hovering above um you know flitting in and out the woods and again like the creature you know they were here one minute and gone the next so you know again that makes it um you know it's problematic in finding them but intriguing in the sense that it's like a pattern developing that we're seeing everywhere and you mentioned bigfoot and of course australia has its own version they call it the yowie and and yeah. uh, there are uh we have you know the the uh, the native american legends here uh there we have the uh, the aboriginal legends and their encounters with yowie what can you mm -hmm. tell me about australia's sasquatch well, yeah, I mean, as you said, it's called the Yowie, but it's described as pretty much the same as the American Bigfoot in the sense it's sort of a six to eight foot tall ape-like creature. But what sort of, I won't say it sets itself totally aside from Bigfoot because there are some weird stuff, uh, stories about Bigfoot, but the Yowie does actually come across as far more like a, a supernatural creature. Uh, the native um, Australian Aborigines, for example, they have it, in their, excuse me, in their cultures and stories. 
and legends and they describe it as like a spirit type creature that was sort of connected to the nature of the planet itself um, rather than just being a regular animal you know it was perceived as having the ability to you know exist in our realm uh, and others you know it sort of was described as coming in from other magical realms of existence and um, the native um, aborigines you know sort of uh, lived in reverence of it and um, realized that there was something strange about it. And a lot of the Yarra reports today still fall into those categories where people have said, you know, they've they've seen it in the woods and it's faded away or it's flashed out like in the you know in the blink of an eye or a flash of light, um, which of course regular animals cannot do. Um, so for me, I think again this is evidence that we're dealing with something, the Yowie and possibly the, the American Bigfoot that may look just like an ape that science hasn't classified yet. But when you dig further into it, we do find, you know, that the fact that it's so elusive to the point of being ridiculous, you know, we should be able to, in a city the size of Sydney, capture at least one eight-foot-tall ape if they're roaming around. You know, we're not talking about a little thing the size of a mouse, a mouse you know, but we're just not catching them. And that's the same everywhere. That's the thing that typifies all these ape-men stories from around the world is that they're overwhelmingly 100% elusive. Which, again, tends to uh, suggest or legitimize the theory that part of the the Yowie or Bigfoot phenomena is wrapped up in, in some sort of interdimensional type thing yeah. where they, as you say, they're flitting in and out of our plane of existence and therefore they are uh, elusive. Yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, the, the problem is a lot of cryptozoologists get quite defensive if you dare say that it's anything other than just an ape, you know. And so, unfortunately, a lot of these stories get underreported um, and underinvestigated. You know, the witnesses feel they're going to get ridiculed. The researchers don't want to touch that sort of stuff. You know, it's like an anathema to the, you know, the regular cryptozoologist. Oh, sure, yes. They'll, they'll only go so far. I mean, even getting them to admit to the possibility of the existence of one of these creatures is one thing. Once you start getting into the interdimensional realities and the possibility that they could be psychic or they're connected to the UFO phenomena, they just back out of the room slowly. Yeah. Uh, Nick, very quickly, we've got about two minutes. Do you have a, a favorite uh, a weird place on this globe? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe this would be sort of one that would be, you know, um, I guess sort of t sort of t a typical example because it's not too far from where I grew up, and that would be Loch Ness in Scotland. Um, now, you know, when anybody thinks of Loch Ness, you know, they think, of course, of the Loch Ness monster, which is understandable, you know, because the story is well known and goes back centuries, actually. The earliest report we have is like a thousand years. But a lot of people don't realize that Loch Ness isn't just weird because of the Loch Ness monster. Um, the famous occultist Alistair Crowley actually had a house on the shores of Loch Ness called Beleskin House, where he reportedly in the 1910s um, tried to conjure up demons from the loch. Um, and this, this house, Beleskin House, was actually owned in later years by Jimmy Page, the guitarist with Led Zeppelin, and he also said he had this sort of unsettling atmosphere. But there have also been reports of men in black encounters at the loch, uh, some classic a uh, UFO encounters um, actually over the water. Uh, people have reported seeing large black cats like um, 
you know, the so-called Black Panthers, as they've become known, sort of prowling around the shores. And there have even been reports of different types of creatures in the loch. You know, you have the classic long-necked, Nessie-type reports that people talk about. Other people have said they've seen a creature that looks like a giant frog, sort of seven to eight foot long, sort of bulbous, round creature. So, you know, that, that for me is one of the most intriguing places because Loch Ness, you know, it's a large loch, yeah, it's like 22 miles long, but it's dominated by a, high, a wide range of phenomena of a paranormal nature that goes far beyond just the Loch Ness Monster. Well, for an enigmatologist uh, like you, that's like one-stop shop, uh, one stop shopping right there at Loch Ness. <laughs> exactly, Listen, yeah. Uh, Nick, congratulations on another fine uh, piece of literature, The World's Weirdest Places, uh, um, available at uh, Amazon.com and uh, finer bookstores everywhere. What's next, very quickly? Um, well, actually, I've got a new book out towards the end of the year, which is called Monster Diary, and that will be published by Anomalous Books. And it's basically um, my sort of cryptozoological research, which is my other big interest. You know, I sort of do that road trip style, going on the road looking for these things, and that's how I sort of write up those investigations. And that's what this book will be, it's sort of a write-up of my last three years of on-the-road stuff in search of Bigfoot, the Chupacabra, Mothman, and things like that. Ah, can't wait, and we'll have you back on when, that, right, uh, when that's available to book buyers. Nick, thanks for this. All right, thanks, Richard. I appreciate having me on. Thank you. Nick Redfern, The World's Weirdest Places, back next week with a brand-new show. Hope you'll be along for that. The, coming up on the show, The Race for a Time Machine, plus uh, Brad Steiger, our uh, paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, returns to the program, and we'll learn about a very interesting fellow down in uh, South America in Brazil who has supposedly remarkable healing powers, John of God. Hope you'll be along for those shows and more. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known, which you hear in the dark. Speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.